What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actual Eye Podcast. We are live on YouTube, on Twitch, and on Facebook. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we're going to be covering episode 19 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, Augustine and Aquinas. Aquinas. So yeah, last week we talked about um, Gnosticism and Gnosis and the dangers of radical transformations. So the most present dangers or the ones we talked about most were uh, parasitic processing and that's, you know, your learned behavioral responses to stimuli, usually negative stimuli, leading you back to the point at which you were before and constantly tunneling down. And then the academic term bullshit, salience without truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word Gnosis, we can look at, or I, I have it framed out as you have a higher state of consciousness wrapped inside a ritual, uh, ritual framing wrapped inside a supportive community. Um, and if any part of that goes wrong, then you think, well, things go a bit awry. Um, you know, cause like, you know, you can look back to like, you know, the sixties and seventies, the hippie revolution where we had a lot of cults that stemmed out of using old knowledge, but maybe the type of higher stage of consciousness were a little off, or maybe the ritual was a little off, or maybe the community was just Hmm. out there, you know, Mm -hmm. So it's important to have all three, you know, your yes, your experience, the ritual, and the community all in sync. More than just set and setting, you know. Because the ritual helps also frame in, like, what is the intent within it as well. Yes, you yes. Know? Yes, so we came up, came up with Gnosis as a way of understanding and being, and it became an axial revolution within the axial revolution mm-hmm. that was occurring all these guys that the early Gnostics were Christians and they saw the point of Gnosticism as to be as one with God Mm -hmm. and they endeavored to become like Jesus they saw Mm -hmm. him as the way and this this you know this is a natural I would say like a natural outgrowth of the need for something when you are experiencing profound domicide when everything's crumbling around you, your home is no longer home anymore. Like, what do you do? Well, you have to create a system to help attune you to the way the world is, opposed to the way you would have it. You know, mm-hmm. that going all the way back to the lower world and the higher world, um, even though that was, you know, a flawed concept in and of itself, it still helps. You know, the, the way I think of it is, you know, there's the world we exist in, and that we're perfectly happy with just being in and and just like you know having the things within it and doing the thing and then there's the world that it actually is that actually is Mm. you know and we can experience that profound feeling by just going out in nature and going oh my goodness (laughs) like wow yeah i've turned off my phone for the day and oh i feel so much better or like i got out of the city or i decided to take a weekend off from working or Mm, and then you start to get the you know Start to feel centered and grounded mm-hmm. here again. It, almost yeah. transformative. For sure. You know? Yeah. I went and sat down by the creek today, actually. It was mm-hmm. a beautiful day. It was a oh, man, beautiful day. So there was three aspects to Gnosis 
you were mentioning before we actually went uh, live here, yeah. the altered states of consciousness yeah. or higher states of consciousness, yeah. the ritual framing. Which wraps the higher state up. of consciousness, and you achieve the higher states of consciousness through these through. this ritual play, mm-hmm. if you will, to mm-hmm. get that ritual helps get you there. Yeah, so these are psychological frames, existential modes of being that we can take on mm-hmm. that are ritualized. And then you you need a supportive community. Yeah. You need the relevant skills and then a wisdom community to and, capacity and, to overcome one's own BS and self deception. Yeah, and instructional. Like I think yes. that's like that word I don't think Verveki used that word, but I, I substituted it, but like instructional, like as in it's like, okay, what did I just go through? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well let's let's talk about it. Let's give you instructions on the next step as you're gaining meaning in the next step. Right, because um, you know, some you need. You just went off into outer space. You need some instruction. You did what bring to up, do with it. You need feedback. You need mm, guidance. Yeah. You need encouragement. So there's there's a lot to that social network, yes. that supportive community. Yes. And why are we inducing altered states of consciousness at all? Well, the argument here is that there's a significant chance of allowing one to reframe reality in a more organized way that's more accurate to what's actually happening around you. That's more healthy for this one psychology and physiology as well. Um, but there is the danger of parasitic processing, um, BS, and self-deception. Uh, that's another reason why we induce these altered states to reframe. Mm-hmm. So Gnostic theology has the mythological scaffolding, and then joined into that, it gets enmeshed with Neoplatonism. Yeah. And we learned this in our previous episode on Plotinus and Neoplatonism. It was part 18 of the series. Yeah, so there's this idea that we're introduced to um, that is the demiurge, mm-hmm. and the demiurge is becomes aware of the the shapes in the universe and space and time, and sets them in a way which mimics the cosmos or the the celestial world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the concept as up as above, so below, like in the Hermetic teachings, I forget what the word for it is, but that it, it'd be about there. It's like this world is framed and shaped by a demiurge to mimic the actual celestial world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could take it from Plato's perspective where this is a, a benevolent, beneficent demiurge, or you can go into what some Gnostics did where it's, oh, well, what's the one thing in common that all the gods of all the peoples had in common? Well, there were prison guards, gatekeepers. You, you were subservient to them. Everything you did was for them. Mm-hmm. You were, it was a you know servant or slave relationship with your god, yes. and they chose to try to figure out a way to rise above that to the god mm-hmm. of all gods, the god above gods, this god of light, the the higher god. Yes, yeah, they believe there's a divine spark mm-hmm. that will carry us to that god of all yeah. gods, and this was this orientation towards Old Testament God versus New Testament God that yeah. is occurring here. This Old Testament idea of God was something that's very authoritarian very can be very genocidal you know mm-hmm. mass floods if you don't please it favoritism oh, yeah. Yeah. of certain of, of its certain favorites the chosen uh, peoples depending yeah, jo- on what the, the god ones. is you have different chosen peoples it, it's admittedly yes. self-admittedly jealous and vengeful yeah. mm-hmm. and then then we get this new testament idea of god this god of agape of light and of love the god beyond all gods mm-hmm. that wants us to reciprocate with one another and it's more egalitarian. It's inviting women into worship as well. Yeah. The the un the unpersons is personing the unpersons. Mm-hmm. 
the women, the cripples, the, yeah. the children, the, yeah. and the, the slave, the yeah. nerdy well that people are done with and can't mm-hmm. deal with anymore, mm-hmm. but make, making the or, people, the orphans, persons the out of, yeah. Yeah. Making, yeah, persons out of people that weren't persons. Cons- yeah, considered, considered persons, persons yes. Yeah. And uh, so the Gnostics believe that we have the power to transcend mm-hmm. this old demiurgic God and uh, move into the state of God beyond gods and that God, that God of light. Mm-hmm. The message was brought to us by a messenger that is called Jesus. Jesus yeah. And it's it's more about the teachings of Jesus and not the individual that was Jesus. Yeah, it's more about, it's less about believing that he sacrificed himself literally and all these yeah. things literally happened. It's more about the way, following the way that he lived. <clears throat> and uh, Rebecca, you discussed the, you know, the reason, like, you know, the reasoning behind, you know, like the, the Gospels and other books in the Bible not necessarily being a super coherent canon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't having a super coherent ca- canon that was the important part. It was the participation in making these, you know, these gospels, these writings, and making it. It's the, the participation yes, of yeah. making it, w- which was the important part, not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know. Well, if if you like nerdy stuff like me, I care. Like I watch Star Trek. I care about canon. Don't you mess with my canon unless it's an alternate timeline. But we're not going to talk about the Kevin timeline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, anyway. So it's it's less about like the rule sets that make everything. It's you no, know, it's participating in it. It's about writing the poems and the songs as you go in it. Mm. Um, a very live, you could almost say, like improv experience. Yeah, um, it, yeah. Embodying the virtue that Christ represented is uh, seen as a way to free us from suffering. Mm-hmm. Through- this is a process of enacting anagage, higher states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gnostics do want to spread this message. Sure. So there's this Platonic impression there. They reinterpret Jesus as the way, not just the sacrifice in which mm-hmm. we have faith. Yes. So mm-hmm. the ways of thinking and being that exacerbate our suffering the inertia of these existential traps is what this mm-hmm. mode, this approach, this orientation mm-hmm. to life is, is allowing for us. Yeah. Uh, and, and we see this explicated in films like the matrix. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's so it's creating a mythology without the dogma. Mm-hmm. And we've done this um, in modern times with things like the matrix or the Truman show or, mm-hmm. Um, where it's 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 the myth, and the myth is helping tell a story that it's an it's an analogy for like the story is an analogy for the actual meaning. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about certain aspects of certain types of meaning, it's hard to actually put words to them. So you tell a yes. story, so we tell you create stories. the myth behind it, so you can kind of put yourself into Neo's shoes. Yeah. Humans have been thinking in and, stories for probably. Mm-hmm hundreds of thousands of years as long as we've been able to make language to some degree and, and, and sure act out even, our even just acting it out yeah, you just know acting is, it out, that's been going on know. a long time so we have so we have this story matrix trapped in a false world just like plato's allegory of the cave mm-hmm. and there's these agents that are trying to keep us from true freedom and the truman show the true man truman is held back by this overlord that wants to keep him from his true agency mm-hmm. from his true love from and so he 
he has to find a way to get the knowledge, essentially. And that's what you see in the Truman Show. Yeah. And it's the idea that there's a system that keeps you from being a true man. Mm-hmm. So this, so this idea, like this way of conspiracy thinking theory. is so deeply ingrained yeah. in our culture around the world now. This is how we think as human beings. We think about that self-improvement. Yeah. We think about how far along are you in life as important things. This is all part of this yeah. this philosophy that has been so so deeply embedded in, in Western culture and, and certainly a lot into Eastern culture as well. And so these myths are pointing us to those perennial patterns, those ongoing patterns that are pervasive. Mm-hmm. That's that's that the symbolic symbolic representations of our suffering and how to overcome it is that axial revolution. Yeah, and uh, Verveke, um gave a good example of the dark side of that conspiracy theory demiurge. Mm-hmm demiurgic control of everything so the way he broke it up is there's an evil evil overlord well that's the old god mm-hmm. who worshiped the old gods the jews and oh, those were the right. nazis yeah. who blamed the jews for that so it's a twisted gnostic response mm-hmm. to the being post weimar republic and dealing with world war one and then being com- com- like you know at that time in germany like you know dollar their German dollar, or whatever it's called. So that's like a dark use was, of the force because no, no, yeah. this could be seen as the force. Well, Star yeah, Wars brings up the <laughs> yeah. Star Wars metaphor yeah. here too, yeah. talking about the dark side. But that's, that's really powerful that the way you just pointed that out there, that helped me see what Verbeke really meant there with the Star Wars metaphor even more. Yeah. 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 And so what I have written down for what he said after this is we should be ambivalent to Gnosticism Yes, and we should try to salvage gnosis like the 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 ritualistic aspect the framing of gnosis Mm -hmm. from gnosticism Mm -hmm. Um, because the process of enacting a gage or higher states of consciousness in order in in a communal fellowship type of fashion Mm -hmm. with the checks and balances in there to keep ourselves from being taken over by our own self-deception and whatnot Mm -hmm. that is a very beautiful and that's pervades modern christianity and many other spiritual traditions this is something Mm -hmm. that is at the core of how we think of the world and fair treatment as americans Mm -hmm. and so he he brought up some gnostics that weren't the nazis one of them tillich who's definitely not a nazi Mm -hmm. they did not like him um he was interested in the rediscovery of the being the I guess the being mode of the God beyond mm-hmm. the God of theism. Yes. And yes. then there was Young, who you could think of him as like you know a psychological med- medical practitioner that used Gnosticism mm-hmm. in his ideas. You know, he was a psychologist and he looked at the world that way. So maybe you know trying to help in that way. And then mm-hmm. we had Corbin, who was trying to recover this these traditions of Gnostic knowing and like getting that back. Yes. Because by the time these guys came around, Gnosticism was already very old. Yes. Yeah, because the belief, you know, the realization now is we must discover sacredness in a way that saves us. Yes. So, yeah, Pajot, Carl Jung, or Jung, um, bringing up this positive side of Gnosticism that we see in our psychotherapy nowadays. To this day, this inactive anagoge, this inactive transformation that you help people mm-hmm. through in therapeutic settings, that is the idea of Gnosis in a nutshell, what you're doing there. Um, discovering sacredness in a way that saves us. So we, so 
I love Verveke's advice here to return real quickly. Mm-hmm. We wish to explicate or salvage Gnosis from Gnosticism and agape, that unconditional love from Christianity and the wisdom from the ancient order. Mm. And so that's what we see Tillich, Jung, mm-hmm. and Corbin doing here, helping us with now, because we can get trapped into these historical patterns. Sure. We can get stuck in another dark age very quickly. we're very close we're on the verge of one of those moments right now in history which is very exciting but mm-hmm. oh boy i'm tired mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah yeah so corbin stands out as like the first german academic to be what was it um basically shut down by I think the that, Nazis. that was i think that was tillich or, or was that tillich that was, oh, tillich. That was yeah tillich. Okay. I, uh if i have it right he was you know university in the university the wouldn't Corbin's wouldn't play along so they re- removed him of his credentials that's right yeah. which didn't that it didn't that wasn't didn't canada do that to somebody who was like that too uh, yeah i think yeah, they did yeah, recently yeah, yeah, yeah his name know. some R- peterson guy i don't know R- rhymes with corbin corbin, <laughs> <laughs> corbin, yeah, corbin say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well you know uh what, what is it uh what's the saying history doesn't repeat itself it rhymes it rhymes that's a good way of putting it yeah, so we go on to Neoplatonism, mm-hmm. and in Neoplatonism, the one is at the core, and not the singular, but the whole, the whole Double. structural func- functional organization, the one, mm-hmm. the ev- all parts acting together in this one thing. Mm-hmm. Not the singular, like, you know, oh, you're the singular one, one, I'm one, I'm singular. No, it's everything, everything. that makes up it's the, the totality. Yeah. yeah, It's non-dualism. Yeah, and so Aristotle, he, he he brought some people up from previous episodes. Aristotle had the conformity theory, as in you conform to things and you have mm-hmm. different levels that you move up into. Um, he really liked descriptions, didn't he? Yeah. He and things to be defined. And as you move up through these livable, viable levels and conform more to the world, it helps us remember the being mode more. And the Stoics um, were concerned with um, overcoming modal confusion, yes. which helps us in the being mode more instead of confusing the having with the being. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. ultimately, that helps us know what is actually real, like the structural, functional organization of what is real. Yes. Um, this is what brings us to um, Plotinus mm-hmm. and his grand unified field theory to integrate uh spirit the spiritual systems yes so he takes the anagoge from plato mm-hmm. the knowing from aristotle and the overcoming modal confusion how to be in the being mm-hmm. mode more from the stoics and ultimately it's to become more real and experience more real yeah and you can't have that you can only be that you can't have more That's real right. you can only be more real yeah. so Pl- plotinus integrates christ's christianity with Gnosticism and Neoplatonism, along with s- spiritual exercises one can perform in this mode. We know by being, we have levels of being mm-hmm. and pure potential to pure actuality, levels of realness. Yeah. As we come to know these realities, we conform to them. Yeah. We make them more livable. We change reality in ourselves. As we change reality in ourselves, we're leveling up the self, and it's becoming more capable of living in that higher reality, and it gets into this reciprocal looping that's just continually upgrading itself. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, so this helps us to remember the being mode. What makes something real? What makes something fe feel salient and to us? And not even just like a quick, oh, well, this is what makes it real. No, what are all the components together and how do they function? Mm -hmm. And what is their function as well? Like the, the chair. The chair can be a table if, yes. you, if you use it as a table. Yeah. It can also be a stool if you use it as a stool. How deeply do but, we know that... Yeah. that oneness of the disparate parts mm -hmm. yeah and that's the oneness it's that all gains the parts. Us realness that's what gains us realness mm -hmm. because things become more integrated together and as we become more integrated more actualized we become more realized and doesn't that make a lot of sense like you know say like go to a festival and you know you're either taking lsd or psilocybin mushrooms and you get this profound feeling of oneness where you're watching all the things happen and deeply understanding it happening and then when i don't know something happens like somebody comes by and goes here kind of felt like you're like yeah no that actually makes perfect that sense so yeah sense. that that fits in there perfectly that's the oneness that the, mm -hmm. the, the, the all the little bits and everything seeing the whole out of all the little disparate bits yeah all together fleeting as it may be you know if you're doing mushrooms it's like four hours and acid is perpetual if you just keep doing it uh, that's what they figured out, you know, <laughs> Timothy Leary and all them. They're just like, just keep drinking it. You just keep going. And I'm like, no, I'm too, I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah, four hours well, is good. I want to, I want to go to bed. <laughs> I think if one's working in, with any substance or even it's a, a breathing practice or a chanting, it's how attentive to you are you to that moment that allows, you know, it's even more so than dose that. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, they, they, they can aid us tremendously, but even smaller doses of some of these substances, with the right set and mind mindset and the right setting, and then uh, perhaps you could say skill or cultivation of meditation or sense of the present moment. How familiar you are with that present moment, and you know how how comfortable are you at being able to return mm -hmm. to that easily and not be pulled around by your thoughts, by your psychology, how much of a master of your mind are you? And All of these come into play because if you can just be and you can go into that stillness, that becomes increasingly pronounced under the influence of certain and you'll medicines. And you'll come in and out of it too, just like with, medi really just like with meditation. It. You know, you come in and out of that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so, you know, like ultimately... The longer and, and, you can stay open, the more yeah, it magnifies and yeah. magnifies within the moments and people have experienced the or peak experience. Or maybe not the length, but Let the breadth don't at which you could yes. open. Yeah, you know? the length and the breadth of it can increase exponentially. And so if you're having one of those peak moments where something is really starting to become apparent, but you get a little distracted and you come back because it's beautiful and you want to see it more and feel it more and understand and it more, let go completely. It actually kind of reminds me of... Um, and trust and just open your heart with love uh, so saul's story before he became paul it wasn't that he like say like you know was suffering for weeks and months on end to have this epiphany no it slammed him on his behind mm. immediately mm. so like sometimes you can have insanely profound That's higher so states true. of consciousness yeah. in a split second absolutely mm -hmm. um you know usually like i would have to say those are probably more of the ones that sneak up on you and get yeah. you where you have those <gasps> It always befalls like a grace. Yeah. It always befalls like a yeah. grace. And you yeah. can't make it happen, but you can perhaps make the mind fertile ground for it. Sure. To, more yeah, fertile yeah. for it to occur yeah. in. So the more space that you can explore between your thoughts and the more use you are to returning to that present moment in life in general, the more you can access the deeper uh, spaces of those higher states, I would say. 
So oh, that's the end of my notes. So, uh, so yeah. So un- so understanding these processes help us reduce inner conflicts, makes more viable the deeper interconnection with reality. Higher states of co- uh, co-creation can be achieved by humans with this change in our existential mode. Um, you can't have it because you already are it. That's one of the things mm-hmm. that's really difficult to grasp about meditation, self-realization, enlightenment, so on and so forth. But one of the best metaphors I ever heard is that when you're trying to meditate, first off, there's no try and there's no do. The idea of the doer that does things is the ego, is the psychological sense or idea of self that we hold in our heads. So what we're doing instead of, because we're always kind of think of this as like we're always trying to grasp and have control over life. But if we can relax the grasping, if we can let go, so it's an undoing rather than a doing, then you can be in that space anytime. And that is the space of meditation that we return to over and again. And you can help focus into it by focusing on your breath or maybe the sound of that light tinnitus of that of reality in your ears whatever it is that's a nice benign focal point you just i got permanent tinnitus bro it's just all the time benign thing that you can just hold your attention on the underlying there definitely is there definitely is a tone um and i i do experience this when i'm intentionally going down into dreaming um as you regress back and back and back eventually this tone and it's not one tone it's like it's like a chord harmony of tones and uh when you know when i'm doing it i like to make music in my head and then you can hear it but you it's this one tone it's Hmm. unsingable unknowable it's all tones but all all of the harmonic overtones all together but still just one Hmm. it's the one it's all of them to make the one because you know when like so if i was to sing like uh you could call that an A or an F or whatever mm-hmm. that might have been, but there's actually, you know, there's there's so an A, no discernible. but there's the perfect fourth and the perfect fifth in there, in and there. the se- major seventh in there, and a major third in there, but they're all at different mm-hmm. levels to the main chord one, and that's what we call the 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 timbre or timbre of your voice. Uh, Why all voices sound different and all instruments sound different is because the overtone series is slightly different in each things, so. The different components of the many create the one sound. sound. itself is a very weird phenomenon. Very the fact odd. that we have vocal boxes and then mouths and tongues to shape the words and the way that we push air with our oh, diaphragm. Oh, humans can make crazy noises too, yeah, man. I mean, we've been like, doing it for a long time for us to be able to actually have a reliable way to sing, mm-hmm. you know, where you're really projecting your voice, but you can do so in a beautiful way to your fellow creatures. That's how long have we been singing even. As long as we've been able to go <sighs> willfully, you know, that's the one thing. Yeah, like yeah, great yeah, apes, they don't have the same well, ability to hold their hold their breath and then release slowly. It's we, a <laughs> we're the only yeah. like ape-like mammal that yeah. holds our breath underwater that knows how to hold its breath. Yeah. Very few mammals know how to do that. They're like beavers. There's dolphins and whales that are super evolved to the yeah. water. They are mammals, but. You you do have the beavers and things like that. But if you too, notice, when there's do- not many of them, but we're a, one of them. When a dog goes diving, it doesn't necessarily hold its breath; it just constantly blows bubbles out of its nose. Hmm. Um, but even like you know, like you can throw don't don't do this, but you can teach babies how to swim at very 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 early ages, and what it, I forget what it's called. It's the it's the mammalian 
something response that like as soon as like even if you're an infant and you hit like the, the water response you go and you oh, stop breathing oh, yeah, when yeah. you go under you don't inhale right it's so ingrained into us so, so like, it's genetically programmed oh into yeah us. no you can teach infants yeah. how to flip themselves over like, well also we talked about this before yeah. the aquatic ape theory oh yeah our fat yeah. isn't marbleized through our muscle like yeah. beef or other mammals and it's not it's a, actually a subcutaneous and it's not level a, of fat right under our skin that's around all of our yeah. muscles so it's an insulation yeah and it's not like aquatic in the sense of like we were in the ocean it's more like think not about like we apes in the apes in yeah. the swamps like up to their chest in water there which was a would lot make of water. sense they come down to eat this stuff and you already see greater apes for a long time the greater yeah. apes do this they'll find a spot where they know it's safe enough that doesn't go deep enough and they'll go out and they'll get the but they're very wary because apes apes don't float yeah we they, evolved they from sick. something that learned to swim to hunt yeah yeah and you know all, all the best tasting stuff's in the water it could all the be that little... there was an ice age or something the only yeah. thing that they could eat too was like along the the coastal areas where they could find fish. Well, I think it, I think it was the swamps, like because like so, swamps you, so you get out of the trees, and, yeah. you go in the swamps, which teach you how to stand upright, and then you walk out of the swamps on feet mm-hmm. that are like flippers. Oh, that's really good. Teaches you to stand upright. You get yeah. used to standing upright with well, less pressure and muscle weight I mean, when you're in the water. Baboons they live in the plains, but they still run on all fours. Yeah. Why aren't they standing upright? I think it's because at a period of time in our evolution, we were in swamps most of the time, getting used to standing up straight. And walking like this in the water and getting better and better over the eons. I can't get enough of ancient you know. documentaries about early hominids. It's so I, fascinating. I, I'm down with the ancient, the, the, the aquatic ape theory. I think that's the most plausible. I, I saw the old lady that did her TED talk on it, and it was pretty mm-hmm. compelling. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the sense. subcutaneous fats, the fact that we can hold our breaths, the fact that we don't have fur all over our bodies and that our feet are like paddles, unlike the rest of the apes. Well, dude, and there's yeah. people who just live on boats. There's less and yeah, less people bit of now. Webbing. But. St- between all of our digits in the pacific islands and stuff and like you know the southeast asian islands there's groups of aquatic nomadic people that can hold their breath for like 12 plus minutes easy mm-hmm. and actually their spleens are bigger ah. so like we've as humans developed the abilities yeah. to adapt it's to like and you could dive some of that su- too. super yeah. low and then come back up like we're we're now at the point right now where like with proper training Pretty much anybody listening to this can hold their breath for five minutes easy. With it's not, not that hard. With not yeah. too much training. Yeah, you do the Wim Hof breathing trainings that I have on this podcast, and you will easily be able to hold your breath over a minute to two minutes yeah. on your first session. Yeah, what was her name that was in the... And this t- is holding your breath out. You're not even holding her breath in when you do Wim Hof. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, it's it's easier to uh, exhale your breath. Um, you can like I used to do this. So I'd go to the pool and I'd exhale my breath and sit down, and I could sit mm-hmm. longer with an oxidating uh, oxygenating the blood, opposed to relying on the air that's yeah. in your lungs because you're not that's absorbing right. the oxygen unless it's passing your. Um, yeah, that's what you do with the, the breathing the, techniques. You're super yeah. oxygenating all of, all of your cells. Prior don't do to this the by yourself holdout. though. Yeah. Like if you're di- if you're like doing this in a pool, don't do it by yourself because you can hyperventilate yourself. You can't pass oh, out. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. So. Yeah. Be careful. Um, the yeah, don't ever do Wim Hof driving. <laughs> no. Don't do that. No. <laughs> don't ever do it while you're operating any kind of heavy machinery. Not a wise move. No, definitely not. You will very likely get yourself into an accident. Mm-hmm. At least smash into a guardrail. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think that we've caught ourselves up pretty well here. Uh, one, one final note uh, that Verveke laid out for us. That in this time of the culmination of the Greek axial age, there was no division between spirit, science, and psycho- psychology or psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. 
And now we're going to take a nice deep dive into Augustine and Aquinas. This is a really good episode. I'm stoked for this one. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get on over to John Verbeke's Awakening for the Meaning Crisis, Part 19. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we were talking about uh, this interaction and confluence between nascent Christianity, uh, the transformation that's undergoing the Platonic tradition in Neoplatonism, and Gnosticism. We had ended up by talking about Plotinus and how he brings about this grand unification of the best science of the time, Aristotle, the best therapy of the time, Stoicism, and the best spirituality of the time, uh, Platonism, and this is done all in a way that powerfully integrates mystical experience, achieving higher states of consciousness, and rational argumentation. Things that we now experience as diametrically uh, opposed, science and spirituality, reason and transformation, therapy and realness, all of these things were not they were instead powerfully mutually supportive. Now, Plotinus is around uh, 270 or so of the Common Era, and after him, of course, the Roman Empire starts to go into decline, and we're seeing the end of the ancient world. And there is a figure there, uh, a towering figure, who basically brings this configuration, this triangle that I've mentioned, of Christianity Neoplatonism and Gnosticism together he's deeply influenced by all of them although he will eventually give priority to Christianity and that's Augustine so Augustine is a Roman and he's alive in the 4th century into the beginnings of the 5th century as the Roman Empire is entering its final stages. So as you can imagine, the, right, uh, that, that uh, impending collapse is bringing with it a very uh, dark v vision of the world. And for that reason, Augustine is attracted to Manichaeism. Now this is a religion that was started by many from Persia. And many people argue that it is a Gnostic religion. Some people disagree with applying the term Gnostics to it. Again, it doesn't matter. It was, seems to have uh, picked up on a lot of the same kinds of ideas about uh, a, a machinery in which we're enmeshed as creatures of light, and that light has to be liberated by a special kind of gnosis. And, um, and Augustine is deeply attracted to this religion. He's attracted to this religion uh, precisely because it is, as I said, it has Gnostic components in it, and therefore promises to address uh, his own personal loss of agency, which I'll talk about momentarily, but also to address what is becoming more and more um, 
salient to people of Augustine's time, which is a world that is darkening around them. So he's influenced by that, which means ideas of evil and evil powers and structures in the world are very salient to Augustine. He also deeply suffers, as I mentioned, personally. He is riven with inner conflict. Um, to put it, um, I think, in terms that would make sense to us today, uh, Augustine is a sex addict. He is deeply addicted to sexual behavior. Um, he described it this way, and I think this is a particularly apt way of describing his addiction. He said, I was always licking the open sore of lust, which um, gives you a very telling image of a compelling desire and, yet, and, and something disgusting and degrading, and it's also exacerbating and making worse the very affliction that you're suffering. So he, he suffers tremendous self-loathing because of this, um, tremendous loss of agency. And he struggles to try and find a way of getting free from his own personal inner conflict and degradation, and also providing an answer to the evil that he sees in the world. He writes the first autobiography in the history of the West, The Confessions, and in there he relates an experience which deeply, deeply affected him. I would say it came close to traumatizing him. So when he was young, he relates this story, he and some of his friends broke into a courtyard and stole some fruit. And you're thinking, most of us would think, yeah, you know, a young adolescent performing, uh, you know, a misdemeanor act of minor theft, stealing some fruit, who cares? But this is Augustine. He's already enmeshed in a Manichaean worldview. He's already deeply sort of, he's becoming aware as an adolescent of how powerful his drives can be. And what affected Augustine about this very profoundly is he said he did not want the fruit. He did not desire the fruit. He wasn't really trying to impress his friends. He wasn't desiring that. He came away with a very strong experience. It's almost like a reverse of a higher state of consciousness. He came away with a very strong experience that he stole the fruit simply because it was the wrong thing to do. That he wanted to do this. That was something in him that was dragging him down. And this is, again, why this worldview appealed to him. There was, there's these, it's like, again, Manichaeanism is very much like the Star Wars mythology of the light and the dark side. There's a dark side, and it's drawing people down, and it's the side of desire and anger and destruction, right? And Augustine sees this alive within his own body in his sexual addiction. So he travels around the world, he teaches rhetoric, and he becomes uh, eventually connected uh, and familiar with philosophy. And something happens to him that's quite profound. He reads the work of Plotinus. 
He reads the work of Plotinus. He has a very high opinion of Plotinus. He later writes in Plotinus, Plato lived again. And he writes very glowingly of the Platonists. And in Plato, and especially in Plotinus, Augustine sees a different way. He gets a worldview other than the Manichaean worldview. He gets the, the Neoplatonic worldview, and he gets it. I mean this in the Gnosis sense. He gets it. Augustine has a mystical experience while reading Plotinus. He has that ascent up to the one. He rises through the levels of reality and levels of his self, and he has this mystical experience, but he can't hold it. He can't stay there. The, the darkness in him is so, has so much gravity, pulls him back down and pulls him back towards that world of lust and addiction, that reciprocal narrowing that Mark Lewis talks about so powerfully. And he wonders, I, what, why, why is the gravity pulling me? Why is the darkness that pulls me down? Why is it so powerful? Is there anything that more can, can, more, can overpower it and pull me up? He says, I get what Plotinus is talking about, but the evil within me, it's too strong. The darkness pulls me down too much. He will later come to say that this is like a hole in being, and it's just sucking the light away. And so he, he has what some people have reported having after they have some mystical experiences. He has a rebound effect of despair. It's like if I was to show you a beautiful place this beautiful beach, and when you stepped onto the beach, you finally felt at peace, like the peace you've sought all your life, and there's beauty around you, and you feel alive and vital, but you can't stay. You, you can't, somehow you just can't hold, and you're drawn away, and you can't stay there. Now the place you're in, the darkness and the squalor that you're in, is so much worse because you have been in the light and you know you were incapable of staying there. So he's falling into despair and he's at his mother's house and his mother is a Christian, Monica. And he's in the backyard, like the courtyard, and he's listening and he, he hears a child's voice say, take, it, take up and read. And there's a Bible there, or an early version of a Bible. And he picks it up just where it is, and he happens to, of course, read the work of Paul. And in Paul, he finds an affinity, a deep affinity, that kindred spirit. Because in Paul, he sees that same inner conflict, that same tortured inner conflict, and he sees a worldview that makes sense of that inner conflict. And Augustine has this insight. 
He says, look, look, look. Pay attention to Plotinus. Pay attention to Plato. What are they saying? Plato and Plotinus are ultimately saying we're driven by two powerful loves. We're driven, driven by the love of becoming one within and becoming one with what is most real. Just what's driving all of our reason is love. A love, that, a love for what's true, a love for what's good, a love for what is beautiful. And then he says, at the heart of reason is love. And what's damaged in me is my capacity to love. Not my capacity to reason. That's why I have this sexual addiction. My capacity for love has been thwarted and twisted by my sexuality. So I need something that can heal. Remember the gnosis, the healing. I need to be healed. There's a love that is within reason that can help you grow beyond reason to what reason always sought. How do we grow in love? Well, agape. That's what the Christian message is. Agape, by participating in agape, we grow in love. We grow in the love that is driving us to becoming persons. Fully realized persons. So Augustine says, Neoplatonism needs Christianity. And the healing and the response to evil that Gnosticism was looking for can actually be found in Christianity. And so he synthesizes them all together. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna break now before we let Rebecca get carried away. I just got a there. <laughs> just got a call too, so it messed up my sink. So the, the triad of Christianity, Neoplatonism, and Gnosticism, mm -hmm. uh, which Augustine was a participant in. Um, but there's, what is it, Met Medicanism? Medicanism? Medicanism. Uh, the Medican worldview, which is, you know, the evil and the darkness at this period of time. You know, the, the battle between the light and the dark, and there's this all-consuming darkness there is a sense the, that the world is darkening among that the is, people that it's is becoming more and more is, oppression yeah, yeah what is most salient is this darkening of the world mm -hmm. and augustine becomes super salient yeah. to that good and evil that is this idea of inner, yeah. good and evil and inner conflict and so his inner conflict was his sex addiction and i, I liked this quote licking the open um always i'm always licking the open sore of lust and i put a little note here like a dog like I an animal, the open sore of you know, constantly, you know, without thought, just behaving in this self-destructive action. Um, mm -hmm. and act in a way that makes the affliction even worse, even the, worse. Su yeah. the, the suffering, the self-loathing, the loss Lost. of agency. Um, he wishes to overcome, and so mm -hmm. he struggles to get free from this inner conflict, mm -hmm. the sense of degradation he's feeling about himself. And dealing with as well as a way to help solve the evil in the world. So yes, he's really yes, seeking yes. some deep answer yeah. here. So he writes the 
writes confessions and he tells the story of him stealing the fruit. And, and so that's that's quite enlightening. You know, the reason for him is, you know, not because he wanted the fruit or he wanted to impress his friends, but because he knew it was the wrong thing to do. Just because and, it was well, wrong. Well, is that not what teenagers do when they're figuring yeah. themselves out? Well, yeah. particularly obstinate ones, like uh, there's something called obstinate defiant disorder. Mm-hmm. Like, right. no, like, how dare you tell me? No, I'm going to do the opposite because I know it's wrong. Screw you. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you've ever had friends that, you know, I love my friends that are like that, but oh gosh. It's like a kid that's like hungry for attention and hasn't been getting it, and so has found some really clever ways. Yep, or just, you know, the the screw it all, burn it down. I know this is wrong, but, you know, it's, it's something with to do. Evil. Yeah, because yeah. that's how it felt to him. Um, Aquinas describes the strong, the strong experience that something wanted to bring him to destruction, like something within him just wanted to self-destruct. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the... The duck uh, got a will of its own and wanted to wobble its yeah, wheel self to do it into pieces. It's wrong. Yeah. So, so he reads Plotinus. Yeah, and sees a different way, mm-hmm. other than the light versus dark, and the dark is this ever-consuming thing. Um, he says in Plotinus, Plato lives again. Yeah, and he gets it in, in the sense of like gnosis, get it in the sense mm-hmm. of sati remembering as in yes like truly gets it remembers it has the the being experience of it yes the ascent to the one the mystical experience he can't hold it yeah but he can't hold it because he still hasn't overcome his inner demons essentially he can't stay true to a level that allows him to stay in this space and instead of feeling better about the situation when he comes back down he feels even worse you know, it's yes, like man yeah, that's that's it. why is this darkness so powerful what is it pull me? and he, i can he goes deep deeper into despair than ever before because yeah he's man. known the light and now he's fallen and it, yeah it's and i i could i you know i can worse than ever. i can empathize with that you know because i have i have my moments of like yes this is great we're finally here but then man falling back down into it and seeing the nasties of the world and mm. Particularly in those that are close to you within your community, and it's just like, man, like, dude, like, what is this evil suction device, demonic suction device? Not it's a toxicity, like a miasma that's spreading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a like an evil cloud, and then people take on the evil themselves. I remember people's rhetoric changing, and across the right and the left, people were throwing terms like snowflake around back and forth back and forth and it just got progressively or nazi or you know yeah the worst things people can think of okay so but this like i I wrote this note as eden is fleeting like that perfect state is fleeting and the you know Mm. and when you come back out of the light the darkness seems even darker i guess the goal would be is to be able to come back down and not be consumed by the darkness again you know it's like realize the fleeting nature of this aha moment, this understanding, this light. Um, I like that. Eden is fleeting. Um, so he's at his mom's house and he picks up the Bible. And you know, when you do that thing where you pick up a book and you just open it to wherever and you read the first Start line reading. that you see, he had that. And it was Paul. It was Paul. And it was a kindred spirit. As somebody who's like, aha, this guy gets it. Like the same they, they, inner conflict. Yep. Yep. And he, he comes up with the worldview that makes sense help to help him make mm-hmm. sense of it through this. So he recognizes that Plato and Plotinus were both pointing out that there's like two loves that we are driven by, this love with, within and this love for what's real, mm-hmm. this love for what's true, good, and beautiful in the world. 
is at the heart of all reason. Yeah. So, so love is at the heart of reason. And it's not your capacity for reason that gives you meaning. It's mm-hmm. it's the heart of reason in, in and of itself is love. Yeah. And that's what Why gives would you care? the meaning. It's always centered in love. Isn't that amazing? And so he's he's in desperate need of this healing gnosis, this way of understanding and being that's a healing factor. Not delving into it and be like, this is great, and then coming back out being like, oh my God, but I'm coming right. back down to all this, so how do I deal yeah. with it? But something that st- sticks around, and really yeah. the, the only thing that sticks around is the love. The agape, the agape. of Christianity is yes. what stands out to him. Yeah. That really starts to stand out into the forefront mm-hmm. for, our, for Augustine. Yeah. Yeah. The more we participate in the agape, the more we come to know love. Mm-hmm. The idea that at the heart of all reason is love is really profound. It's like, why why do you care about your reasons? Why would you have reasons for anything unless there was not something deep down in there that you that you love that you wish to reciprocate with, that mm-hmm. you wish to be one with, that you that you wish to share in co creation with somehow? Like you want to engage in something true. Mm-hmm. You have a reason for that. This is your opinion. It's strongly held. But at the very bottom of but, it is love. And then are symptoms of, of the reactions of lack of love, like fear. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been asked this a lot. It's like, you know, like, DJ, like, why do you care? Why do you keep talking about these things? You know, it pisses people off. And you're not making any friends. You're actually losing friends. Well, the reason behind me doing what I do and becoming so passionate, the reason is love. Because, I, you know, even if I don't like you, I still love you. And I, I still want to participate in that love that comes before me, that moves through me, that helps create real persons, realized persons. Mm-hmm. And because the rest of it is just despair, going down into the darkness. If you don't have that, you're going down in the darkness. And I've been there, and it's not a good, it's not a good place to be. It's not productive in any certain in no, any as way. As soon as we're in that place where we're willing to cut off our innate love, Mm-hmm. from whole groups of other beings because they they believe in this or they believe in that. I don't know if every single one of those people that are being projected or portrayed to believe a certain way really mm-hmm. do. I'm seeing that portrayed yeah. a lot. But when I talk to the individuals, they don't seem that way at all. They seem quite the opposite. Yep. And it's and so that that's a concern when you see that that happen. Well, it comes but down to there, there is like there is a blanket like an innate love, we don't like to see the suffering of others. No. You know, that's part of how somebody familiarizes themselves with you when they're doing their, their TED Talk or they're telling a story of any kind. It, when it's humanized and you understand a little bit about their past experience, something problemat- problematic they went through, all of a sudden you identify with them more, you start to care about them more. Yeah, It's a natural blanket love that you can have for anybody. Well, and this, this idea that so love is at the center of reason also makes sense for those who preach and push things that are very unreasonable and destructive, they aren't experiencing love. No. And that is tragic. They're experiencing fear. Particularly like, you know, there's there, you know, certain ideological standpoints that are intentionally unreasonable mm-hmm. and intentionally hateful. Mm-hmm. And it's sad, more than just sad, it's tragic that we get tied into these things and they feel good in the moment because it's like, yeah, I'm justified in my anger, but yeah. And you're the on the light right gets side. Dimmer you feel and like you're on the right side and and that you're doing what's good. And you're also feeling, yeah, you feel justified. You also feel safe in your group. And also you're going to feel like 
more accepted maybe by your group and well it's kind of like we really lose our sense of self in there it's kind of like going from a bright day and now it's getting darker and then we're just going to go towards the campfire Mm-hmm. And yeah, that campfire is bright, and you can hang around that campfire, but it doesn't show you. Because you'll anything. hear people say things that are clearly it, well, irrational nowadays. But and the campfire gets dimmer and dimmer yeah. and dimmer, and you get closer and closer and closer until finally it burns you out, and then you're lost in the darkness, hmm. waiting for the day to come. And then when the day happen comes, then you see everything for what it is, and you might be terrified for it. Hmm. Yeah, it's like there's there's a reason why people have a breaking point right before they're waking up again that they're completely irrational they don't know what's happening in the world Hmm. it's quite literally the light has dimmed and the darkness has overtaken and sucking all meaning out the remedy to that is love as best as you can but not the oh go find love and you know love the kittens and the little kids no no like the the love that makes persons the love of co-creation yeah the love that helps bring the humanness out of people. Yeah. Instead of dehumanizing one another, we can help humanize one another again. We can see each other as we are in this moment. Find where somebody's heart is. What what are their orientations around, their value orientations? Why do they have that kind of reasoning? Why do they think that way? Is it because they're cruel and malicious or they're this word or that word or whatever? Or is it that they they might actually have some kind of reason you may disagree with, but you can see that it's reasonable, it's a worthy point of consideration, and they're acting in good faith. And that's actually, you'll find, that's the majority of people that you talk with, especially when we come from that orientation ourselves. Sure. So, yeah, it's a game of reciprocation and co-creation that we're involved in here as human beings, as earthlings, extensions of this planet. We come in all shades and colors and different air our hair and eye and you know colors and whatnot but and we're you all know t- temperamental predispositions predisp- uh, as well some people are just naturally angrier than other people or sillier than other people or you know it's just an, right, you don't want to be the gray or a little you bit know, softer just, you know, like if humanity just became this you know everybody's the same and just the mm-hmm. whatever average between everything that would be terribly boring man would be you know would be and who wants to believe something just because it's popular? You know, the Buddha gave us great advice on that. Don't believe anything just because it seems true and everybody says so. Well, there's Don't believe anything just because the authorities say it's true or your parents or your elders or religious teacher yeah. says it's true. Only believe once you've looked into it for yourself and found it to be good and true for one and all. There's a logical fallacy. I forget what it's called, but it's basically that the it is known fallacy. Hmm. Mm, uh, like don't right. you, the, the world of course the world's flat everybody says everybody knows the world's flat of course it's flat dummy. everyone says it you know that's yeah, what everyone's yeah, believed so for that thousands it, of it years it is known fallacy i forget what the actual fallacy mm. is but like it's something that's so true that we actually have you know a um logical fallacy tied up around it's like don't mm-hmm. don't but, just because everybody's saying it is just go with it because well i'm sorry but everybody can be wrong things we, are never we so have all been like all of yeah. us, like back when we thought the Earth was flat, we were all wrong about that. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, when we thought that we were the center of the universe, we were all wrong about that until somebody questioned and was like, hey, "Well, I don't know. I've been doing some like, you know, charting and some math and stuff, and it actually kind of seems like, you know, yeah, the moon goes around us, but we go around the sun, and then the other planets are kind of doing their thing." And and what he say? Shut him up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. 
Lock him in the tower until he repents. Yeah, you know. But, you know, it's... So, yeah, at at this point, we have um, Augustine. Augustine, yeah. Um, Really trying to come to grasp with his own ickiness and the ickiness of the world. And he's Yeah, he says the evil is so strong. It's like a hole in being that's sucking the light away. Yeah. He wishes desperately to find a way to overcome. And we were getting to how that... Yeah. He found the agape in Christianity yeah. as this key or as maybe the strongest point for yeah. him to focus on now to help basically come to terms with Paul and the inner conflict that he shares with Paul now that he's discovered Paul. So at the heart of reason is love. Yeah, and Eden is fleeting. So cultivate that garden. Oh yeah. Uh, we might need to go back just a few. Yeah, let's do that. We'll go ahead. Go back. uh, I think that's a good spot right there. Okay. Cool, guys. We're jumping back in now. So notice what we now have. Let's put this together very carefully in Augustine. And notice the way he's putting it. He's not putting it out there as a theory. He's writing an autobiography. He's talking about it in a perspectival and participatory way. He writes the first autobiography, The Confessions. This is not a dry academic treatise. This is an existential manual how you can also go through the process that he has gone through. It is Gnosis through and through. Okay, so from Plotinus, what do we have? Well, Plotinus already has given us, because part of Plotinus is the Aristotelian worldview. That's the nomological order we talked about, right? The conformity theory, right? The geocentric worldview, the two things in attunement. This is your, this is the best science account of the structure of reality and how reality is known. From Plotinus himself, we get now what I'm going to call the normative order. Plotinus gave us an account of how we can move in a coordinated fashion up the levels of reality, up the levels of consciousness, up the levels of the self, from what is less real to what is more real. What's Augustine going to do with that? Well, look, what's less real? What's down here has less oneness, less integration. It makes less sense. Look, when I destroy something, what do I do? I take away its structural, functional organization. I make it more disordered. As I go downward, Things are fragmenting, becoming having less and less form, less and less idos. They're less and less intelligible. They're less and less understandable. This becomes more and more pure chaos. I'm losing truth. I'm losing goodness. I'm losing beauty. I'm losing what makes things to be and what makes them to be sensible and intelligible. This is evil. Down here, 
is the, that's the whole, that's the tear in being towards which things can fall. But I can also move up to what's more true, more good, more real. And of course, what Plotinus knows is that this is driven by a love, a love, to, a love of knowing what is real and simultaneously becoming what is more real. And so for Augustine, this of course, and Plato even called it, if you remember, the good. This is the normative order. The normological order tells you how things are structured. The normative order tells you how you can become better, how you can deal with evil, and how you can increase realness, meaning in your life. Augustine takes that, and as I've shown you, he says, wait, the thing about Aristotle is, well, you know what? Everything was moving to get where it belongs, right? But that's all it is in Aristotle. But I think, Augustine is basically saying, that everything is moving in a way in order to try and move us away from evil towards goodness. And so he says, I think Christianity puts these two together. The world, everything is moving on purpose, and the purpose is to try and afford realization, both cognitive and in the world. Things are becoming more real, we're becoming more real, we're realizing that. And then he says, and you know what? All of this is driven by love and about the transformation that happens in me, the gnosis agape. That's the narrative order of Christianity. There's this great narrative, there's this great story about the course of history. And the course of history is a course right, of moving right, towards a final consummation, the promised land. And that is the history of God's love, of God's agape, of God intervening and creating the open future. But that agape isn't just a historical force, it's also a normative force in me. It's also leading me upward towards the good. What Augustine does is he says, Christianity can put all of these things together. The world is organized this way so that it moves through history this way so that all of us can self-transcend this way. All three orders come together in a mutually supporting fashion. Now we know from current cognitive science, right, that the three components of meaning that people talk about, the things that contribute to meaning in life, and this is Henselman's work and others, are a sense of coherence, I'll explain what this means in a minute, a sense of significance, and a sense of purpose. I got to talk to Samantha Henselman about this. The more coherent, the more intelligible, the more things fit together for you, the more real they are, the more meaningful you find your life. Well, that's the nomological order. How things fit together and make sense in a coherent fashion. 
What about significance? Significance is this. How valuable, how, how, how deep in reality, how good are the elements of your life? That's the normative order. Purpose. Does your life have a direction? Is it moving in a course? That's the narrative order. Human beings want things to make sense. They need a noble-logical order. And Augustine says, I have this. It's the Aristotelian world order, and I can give a Christian explanation of that. They want things to be significant. They want to satisfy the anagogic drives of inner peace and contact with reality. And Augustine says, I can tell you that, because I can tell you how to put reason and agape together. That's what Christianity does. And they, people want things to have a purpose. They want there to be right, a story. Christianity is offering the ultimate story. Augustine puts it all together. And he puts it all together as the Roman Empire is literally collapsing. He's in Hippo in North Africa when the barbarians are literally at the gate laying siege to the city. And he's basically laying the foundations for what's going to come next. He's laying foundations for the medieval worldview. But what do we have from this? What we have, right, and we'll come back to the cognitive science, what we have is a very long and powerful history that tells us how our culture has articulated the axial revolution, how it has given a grammar, a way of understanding what the axial revolution has given us. It has given us a, a system for interpreting and inhabiting a worldview in which meaning and wisdom, as understood by the axial revolution, have been developed and have been articulated in a sophisticated and compelling fashion. Meaning is to have a nomological order that connects us to what is real. It is to have a normative order that connects us, not intellectually, but existentially, to what is good so that we can become better. Meaning is to have a narrative order that tells us how we can move forward through history, both collective and individual history. But what I've tried to show you is that these are not three separate things. They're like the three dimensions right, of a space, the space of meaning. They're the three axes of the space of meaning. This is a beautiful synthesis. It's the culmination of tremendous amount of historical development. It's profound. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It is, as I've tried to show you, it is simultaneously a scientific thing. 
a spiritual thing, a therapeutic thing, an existential thing. This is why this is going to last a thousand years. Because it is such a powerful and enriching vision. Imagine if you could, what if I could offer this to you and make it deeply historically, scientifically, and intellectually viable for you? What if I could offer to you a worldview that had the deepest scientific legitimacy, totally integrated with the most profound spirituality, no antagonism, no irrationality in it, conjoined seamlessly with a personal project of therapy, of therapeutic change and healing and sapiential education, the cultivation of genuine wisdom and, self and self-transcendence in community with yourself, your world, your culture and other people. Would you not want this? So here's the question you now have to ask yourself. Why don't you have it? Because we know from the science, that's what you want. We know from the history that that's what our culture has, like <coughs> our foundational culture from the Axial Revolution built for us. Why don't we have it? Is it irredeemably lost? When we lost the Gnostic mythology, when we lost the Aztec, Axial mythology, the two worlds mythology, when we lost the mythology of Christianity, do we, are, are we now bereft forever? So, part of the way I can start to answer that, the, uh, the, the short answer for a, a long series of arguments that are forthcoming is no. I think there is a response. That's why this series is entitled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, not despairing because of the meaning crisis. All right. Good halfway point. Shoo. Yeah, man. Well, I came up for a good, a good symbol from Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I'll, uh, I'll draw it here big so you can see it. Oh, cool. This is the combination of those three... Mm -hmm. uh, coherence, significance, and uh, purpose. Purpose, or the nomological order, so, narrative, and yeah. Christianity together. So you can see this. The, uh, there is a line with some other lines crossing it. So the lines crossing the other line is the nomological order. Looks like an arrow pointed up with three lines in the shaft of the arrow, three horizontal lines, so the arrow is pointing straight up. All right, so now that you've seen that. There you go. Um, so the arrow is your direction, the narrative order, the purpose, and the movement up the, uh, the line. So there's a line and then the cap. The line is the significance, like where are you in most significant or less significant? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's good to like create symbols for yourself for ideas so then when he mentions this triad again or if for anything you can have a little symbol you can jot real quick 
and then make a piece of jewelry out of it and people ask you about it and then you'd be like oh let me tell you about this uh yeah Yeah, and this is depicting this idea of being in a state of more order going towards and going towards towards and always oneness and wholeness you could say and going down is less integration so more integration versus less integration more towards goodness and truth or more down and towards chaos and evil yeah yeah and or you could think of it as like more real and less real and Mm -hmm. if we define you know less real being less integrated less Mm -hmm. idos um yeah less you know reason Mm -hmm. um so we call those things that's reliable reasoning skill and aptitude and and we'd call that end you know chaos or evil right and that's you know i always wondered why we combine the ideas of chaos with evil because like you know like the chaos of the universe definitely isn't an evil thing that's what led to life the chaos within the soup that made all dna and all that stuff um the chaos of nature but I can understand in this end is like going from more understanding than breaking it all apart, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. un, un, unnatural, uh, what would you call it? Uh, from integration unnatu- to disintegration. Or entropy would be the down mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Disintegrating, like literally like integrated. From a distant- giving good loving force of co-creation mm-hmm. to a destructive force. So it's just two ways of understanding. And yeah, so how we can be in a more comprehensive more com- comprehensible uh more clear state and participation with reality or we can be in a state of less truth less goodness less beauty more ugliness mm-hmm. more breakdown so uh, augustine he, he, yeah augustine really he, well he he believed that there is a moving purpose mm. that is m- m- moving toward to afford more realization but it's and it's driven by love that's the driving force that that is moving and this goes back to many episodes ago this is a way that he can overcome his despair Mm -hmm. and live more true truthfully and and good and he's using an older psychotechnology (laughs) that goodly more goodly more Um, goodly he's using a psychotechnology that came or an an idea from way before and that idea was everything has like a, a kind of a, a mover behind it and a purpose but i wish i could remember the word he used for it um but the idea that things have a purpose everything has a purpose that it's doing and in mm-hmm. his case autopoetic autopoetic is i that, think that might be yeah the i think it. that's what it is um and this purpose is to afford realization mm-hmm. to afford mm-hmm. to make allowances mm-hmm. to make the ability to gain realization yes that's the very reasoning that was the very reason that augustine wrote confessions Mm -hmm. from this autobiographical perspective the first time that this had been Mm -hmm. done in this way is perspectival it was autopoetic and it was an existential manual for the process of gnosis Mm -hmm. you could say so moving up and Uh, down well yeah everything is moving on purpose to afford realization of oneself in the world yes there there we go i see you yeah, and it's all driven by love. This was the realization. Yeah. And this is the narrative order of Christianity. Yeah. This is the way that the course of history moving towards this final culmination, this promised land, this heaven, this enlightenment, this gnosis, this, this is how the story has been told. And and, and it's, it's a culmination of everything that came before philosophically. Yeah. 
and by normative it makes things more real mm-hmm. you know um and yeah. a, a, a historical narrative can really help with the making something more real mm-hmm. if if it is only just a salience increase yes but yes. still but that's, that's like, why the narrative is ordered the way it is mm-hmm. in the bible yeah so and it's like he said it's like a story it's a story about how we've moved into and through the axial age mm-hmm. it's a historical and it's also a story of how that force you were talking about in us that's calling us that's pulling us to move towards the good mm-hmm. yeah and all, the, all three orders that augustine says need to come together in mutual supportive action are the coherence significance and purpose coherence we find through the nomological realization the more intelligible something is for us the more the parts fit together in our mind and in our you know in our uh, salience worldview the mixing words up here the more intelligible the more ontological worldview ontological thank you and the more real the more meaningful Mm -hmm. so life has more meaning when we are seeing more clearly and we can allow what is most salient to us in the moment to be what our attention draws forth rather than just being pulled around by our thoughts and by the environment. Sure. Significance, how valuable, how deep does this strike us, the sense of it in reality? This Christianity helped bring about this. And then we have the purpose, which is the direction, the narrative, and so what gives it its stick aroundness? Um he mentioned a you know, like you could imagine like, you know, your three dimension three dimension dimensionality of coherence, significance, and purpose. And if it has the maximal amount of all three, like any good story, or it has it's it's got coherence, mm-hmm. there's uh, more real and less real, very organized in that way. It's a direction and it's and, purpose. And then there's a significance like yes. of how good, like good in the sense of, you know, less chaos, good, yes. that uh, good. And then it has a narrative purpose. So if you mm-hmm. just make a story out of this, you know, you could actually probably hijack this system to improve your writing. If you're a story writer, mm-hmm. like this concept of, okay, think about, you know, it's gotta be coherent, coherent. intelligible. Yeah. So that's real and meaningful. It's gotta be, be significant significant like so how good is it so you could do that in a story of like if you're writing something that's within our age what topics are you touching on mm-hmm. how impactful yeah are the themes and you know you you know usually you want to write a book that makes people feel like how yeah this is good go into you know? reality you know? yeah how Deep well is it? How, well how good is he at you know like immersing you how good you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, how good mm-hmm. how good is the actor how good is the yeah, director yeah. Uh, and, and then and the, the purpose, purpose of it. yeah it's and the that's the proper narrative yeah the, the moving into yeah. in a course yeah the narrative so in christianity augustine discovers satisfies that anagogic drive that drive with psychological drive in human beings and other mammals we've recognized uh crows and dolphins and other things and monkeys and so on um the drive for inner peace and harmony we we have we all have drives for anagogic experiences higher states alter states of consciousness because we're seeking out that deep inner peace and harmony that comes through these experiences and christianity provides the ultimate story augustine puts all of this together right in the midst of the darkness of Rome and he, this time. Yeah, and he believed, 
you know, or well, and I think it's kind of evident, but like, you know, Christianity is not antagonistic. It is also therapeutic. It's, um, what is, what is it? Uh, sapiatic, sapiatic, as in like cultivates wisdom mm-hmm. and real understanding and learning. And it is also scientific in a certain sense, like, you know, not scientific. It's not going to teach you how to like land on the moon or nothing like that or understand it, but scientific in another. Yeah. And we're not saying we're we're saying Christianity in the sense that he saw it through its gnosis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Early Gnostic saw it as the way, Mm -hmm. as a way of being, not just a bunch of precepts and dogma that you blindly believe in. And there's the institution that's going to do all of these horrible things to millions of people in the name of this way well you have it's obviously you have there's some poor examples of the way you even ha- by the churches themselves you have dogma and you can only be gnosis mm-hmm. so that's the modal confusion right there yeah like you know my my biggest gripe for a lot of organized um religion or practices is the confusion of dogma for the being mode because the dogma mm-hmm. is, is you have a rule set you have things that you have to do mm-hmm. opposed to you are doing things. You are participating in it. And that's, that's where it's at. Yeah. It's t- that's where it's at. <laughs> you know, that's where the understanding that really lies. does seem to be where it's at. It's, it's beyond the mere belief that stories are true. It's what are the stories pointing well, to? What's be- the deeper, deepest truth? What's the realer than real that's being told here? I believe that the aquatic ape theory is true, but what is that doing for me? Just believing it. Right. You know, yeah. It's like, come on now. Like, no, there's there's something it's trying to teach you. What is it trying to teach you? You should probably so try to figure that out. It's a realization of part of our human story yeah. and, and helps deep, at least deepen the profundity of the experience of being a human being and recognizing the long history of evolution behind us. Yeah. And, you know, like in Christianity, I guess at at, at its time was not necessarily doing anything completely new. It was just using older psychotechnologies and techniques and ideas and coming and and birthing something new out of that Mm -hmm. and the early gnostics with this love for this idea of this god beyond gods that was this ultimate good that represented this way of agape and the god of the new testament versus this old way of seeing gods before and the god of the old testament that's a really significant contribution it's and I love how Verveke he gets all excited. He's like, "This is such a powerful, enriching vision," and it's lasted for a thousand years yeah. for a reason. It's because yes, we are certainly all. I love the idea that we're all born sinners because it makes sense. Like we are fallible. We are not perfect beings. We're, we have to constantly work to stay on course. We can miss the mark. That we actually, can fall short. That actually gives us gives me some hope because being born a sinner means that you were born with a directionality and a purpose to overcome that yeah yeah well this like, is your challenge you may this is what you're be, you, well you're, you're immediately born with fallible. it but you're gonna you're gonna miss and that's fine the yeah. arrow keeps no, that's, going that's and part you, of it you you, yeah. you tune in as you go mm-hmm. um, it's how it, we get to know and define what love is as uh, well that's a lot better than just being like you're full of sin and you know like we got to beat the devil out of here yeah, or whatever self-reflective you know? aware extensions of yeah. this living planet and this strange miraculous cosmos and perhaps of god itself it's the greatest gift i've ever been given how would you realize how would you know love you know you say you know everything there is to know but you haven't experienced it so big bang boom experience it all 
and now all the different ways that humans can feel and express and know love are being lived out and experienced and love being the source of what causes things to become more realized i really love that concept as well that we got, that we were introduced to, to here in this episode everything is moving on this purpose to forward the realization not just of ourselves but of the world itself things are evolving and becoming more and more and more life you know has become trees trees are super evolved plants i mean sharks are older than trees sharks have been around for a minute but it gives you an idea of how evolved this trees must be because we know that plants existed for a long time before animals came around hmm. yet they're so recent in plant history yeah so yeah i forget well i don't know where i was going there with the trees but i was hanging with the trees today and they were beautiful the trees leaf and the leaf trees that they do alan watts so this powerful enriching version it's scientifically we know therapy works and the process of gnosis is what actually led to psychotherapy as we know it is that very much like they're at the root the intentionality of this philosophical way of framing reality became so enmeshed and embedded in our culture that it became our therapeutic techniques over time this way that we've been framing reality ever since this realization of augustine really helped bring the light of christianity to the world as this gift that did help lift a lot of people up. It helped people find some moral groundwork and way of working together. And there's a lot of beautiful examples of this in Buddhism and so on and so forth. Um, not to take away from any one, because there's a small tribe somewhere that we'll never know that did something just as beautiful. But here we are understanding ourselves as human beings and trying to awaken from this meaning crisis. Is there anything else on this part here? Um, nope. He's he's just starting to uh, get excited about. Uh, oh, I have a note. Um, the question came up. Well, have we just lost it all? Is it like all lost? It's like, well, no, it's not all lost, and that's that's what, what this we're whole doing series here. Is dedicated that's what to. we're doing here is trying to reclaim, uh, to remember, to sati, truly yes. remember the things that we've been through, but removing mm -hmm. the pieces that don't work. And we're reminding ourselves, remembering the sense of the sacred. Yeah. And becoming more good. Yeah. We're coming out of chaos, mm -hmm. trying mm -hmm. to piece things together, to reintegrate. Yeah. Opposed to disintegrate. Yeah. Um, so now we delve into the sacred. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, let's jump back in. Back them up like 10 seconds. I believe. Right on. Oh, I believe. Yeah, let me go ahead and back us up just a, just a wee bit here before we jump back in. That's why this series is entitled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, not despairing because of the meaning crisis. But we're only halfway through, right? We've, we, we're only halfway through posing the problem. We, have to, we need to understand. We're getting an understanding of this meaning and this wisdom. We're getting how it was articulated and developed and woven into our cultural framework, our cognitive machinery, the very grammar of our, of our existential modes. But we still don't know why does it all fall apart? How does it all come apart? And where does that leave us? We need a better understanding of the genealogy now of the crisis. Now that we have a better underst historical understanding of the nature of the meaning that was lost, we need to understand, we need to understand the, the, the process of loss.
So, as I said, this world is the world that Augustine bestows, and this is what you need to understand. There's tremendous loss when the Roman Empire collapses. It's not as great as the Bronze Age collapse, but it is, it's major. So there's, but it's only in the West, by the way, not in the East. The Byzantine Empire survives. But nevertheless, there's a traumatic loss, traumatic, not dramatic, traumatic loss of cities, literacy, trade, commerce. The standard of living that was lost in the Roman Empire is not recovered again until 1750 in London, England. It takes that long for that standard of living to be recovered again. So this is very traumatic. But the heritage given by Augustine is so powerful that it serves as, and I'm using this word very carefully now, I hope you understand, it serves as a home for people throughout all of this turbulent turmoil. But some things start to happen that start to pull it apart. This sacred canopy starts to be torn apart and can no longer shelter us from our terrors and our despair. So one of the first things is in 1054, there's a division, and I, I'm not going to go into all, all, part of it has to do with the, that the Roman Empire in the West collapses, but it doesn't collapse in the East. The East is Greek-speaking, the West is Latin-speaking, that in addition to Augustine, uh, the East is deeply influenced by Dionysus, pseudo-Dionysus, pseudo also the case in the West, there's a, but there's a lot of cultural, historical, socioeconomic differences in how Christianity was understood, and they split apart. There's what's called the Great Schism. So Christianity splits between an Eastern Orthodox and what's going to be called a Catholic version of Christianity. This, of course, weakens Christianity. It also has an impact on it. By separating itself from the East, Christianity loses some of the connection, at least the Christianity in the West, Western Europe, Christianity loses some of its deeper connections to that Neoplatonic mystical theology. And that starts to have an impact. The West starts to become less and less Platonic and more and more Aristotelian. Now, as always, this starts, right? This starts with a change in psychotechnology. So, Ivan Illich has done some work uh, looking at the, uh, the work of Hugh, Hugh of St. Uh, Victor, who was around from 1096 to 1141. And what he points out, and Chetham talks about this um, in his book, uh, in his books, and uh, Chetham also refers, as, as Corbin does too, Corbin talks about this, 
Um, Chatham talks about this, refers to the work of Krantz and others. Trying to summarize a lot of this, what's happening is there's a shift in reading, how people read. Right? And it's after the schism. So before that, and this is something I can speak to from first person, before that, reading is done largely aloud. People read aloud. They read the Bible, for example, because that's mostly the only thing that can be read. And some of the church fathers, people like Augustine, for example, they read aloud. Reading is often done communally. So first of all, you're embedded in a cultural context. You're embedded in a sapiential community. You read aloud, and more than you read aloud, you're reciting. So let's try and get something in your experience that might bring this out. Okay? Think of the difference between reading a poem and reciting a poem. And it's no coincidence, by the way, that when Gabriel spoke to Muhammad, he told him to recite, not to write. Okay? What happens when you... I, I, I was... I, something wonderful. Uh, uh, last Saturday was my birthday, and so it was a surprise party. Uh, my partner, uh, she uh, organized a wonderful party for me. Uh, and I'd always said that um, instead of gifts, I would prefer it if people... Uh, brought a, uh, one of their favorite pieces of poetry and read it aloud. So it was a, a poetry party. And people read it aloud. And there's such a difference between reading a poem silently and reading it aloud because the intonation and the sharing it with others makes it very different. What was uh, particularly beautiful is um, uh, my girlfriend actually, she's, she's a gifted singer, she actually sang her version of the poem by Robert Frost. It's the famous one about the two roads diverge and, and I took the road less traveled by and that has made all the difference. But when somebody is singing a song, singing a poem, and most songs are poems if you, if you think about it, right? it is appealing to you not just propositionally. It's not just Right? That kind of knowing. It's not just trying to create beliefs in you. First of all, by reciting the poem, right, you, you, and trying to communicate it to others, you have to bring in all your know-how of communication. Being able to share with other people. You have to, all, all your ways of paying attention, much more embodied. There's the perspectival stuff. What does it feel like? What is it like to be here in this space, in this context, with these people uttering these words? And, that, and with that, it has the potential to be participatory because people are like, these are poems that have changed them, have made a difference to their identity. They know these poems not the way you know the words on the back of your cereal box. They know these poems because of the way in which they have been changed by them. Their very sense of identity has been altered by it. See, so when people were reading then, they're reading the Bible, they're reciting it, they're reciting it communally. They're also doing something, and I do this practice now, and other people do, right? It's called Lectio Divina. It's a way, it's a way of reading a text Right? In which you are not speak. The point is not to 
have the propositions and to speak, it is to let the text as much as possible speak to you. It is to engage with the text in a meditative, mindful fashion, opening yourselves up to the possibility of it transforming you. It is much more like going to listen to a piece of music and having prepared yourself, prepared the receptivity to have a profound aesthetic experience. It's analogous to that. You're reading and you're reciting in such a way that you're trying to open yourself up to this text speaking to you. People that are religious will often talk about this as if God is present in the text and speaking to them through the text. This is how people were reading. It's a form of reading that is ontologically remedial. It's designed to heal you, transform you. It's designed to trigger, activate, and educate your procedural, perspectival, and participatory knowing, not just give you propositions. It's about helping you in your reading remember the being mode and not just have beliefs and propositions. But people start to read differently shortly thereafter. What's happening is people are shifting from, right? So, Avicenna, which is an anglicized form of Ibn Sin, who's a great Persian uh, philosopher, he was, up until this time, very the dominant interpreter of that, of that Augustinian worldview, that whole Augustinian way. And he gives priority to the Neoplatonic. And Corbin is going to make a lot of the fact that Persian philosophy was always trying to keep the Neoplatonic and Gnostic elements of spirituality alive. Persia has played a much greater role in uh, world history and cultural history than we have properly given credit to in uh, the so-called West. But he, he, he gets replaced by Averroes, right? And Averroes is more purely purely Aristotelian. And what that really means is a shift, a shift to giving exclusive priority to definitions. Remember, Aristotle tried to understand essences, the eidos as essences and essences as definitions. And that's very problematic because many things don't have definitions but definitions and propositions. So people now start to read silently to themselves and what they're trying, what they give priority to, right, is coherence within a language rather than transformation within themselves and the world. So what matters is how the various symbols, and I don't mean that in a spiritual sense, the various propositional terms and logical connectives fit together coherently. So a new model for thought emerges. See, the old model was thought is a conforming to the world and 
and then we get this, this, we got this articulated and developed and expanded into this whole process of gnosis and anagoge and self-transformation. That model of knowing that's also a way of being, that's also a way of becoming, that's being taken away and it's being replaced by a different model. Thought, knowing, is to have coherent propositional language. Thinking is to have a coherent set of propositions in your head. So Kranz talks about we shift from the extensive self, the self that is transjectively connected to the world, that understands itself in terms of its conformity to the world, to right, an intensive self. This is a self that's inside my head, it's inside my beliefs. Myself is primarily the way I talk to myself by affirming my beliefs through propositional language. So people start to think that the primary way in which we know things is to get as much coherence within our inner language than instead of conformity in our outer existential modes. Now why would people make this shift? People make this shift because the world is starting to open up again. People are starting to get interested in knowing the world scientifically. We're getting it's, and it's going to, it's going to, it's just slowly beginning here, right? But we're going to get the move towards the value of having, and, and, and by the way, I believe in this value. <laughs> I'm a scientist, right? The value of logically coherent, well-organized propositional theories. The power of this is being discovered. So when I can read in this other way, right, I can empower my argumentative skills tremendously. What I'm losing, right, what I'm losing is I'm losing reading as a psychotechnology of psycho-spiritual existential transformation. Reading is now becoming the consumption of propositions and their structuring in logical coherency. Why? Well, as I said, there's the beginning of this reorientation towards the external world, and it's being driven by the fact that Aristotle is coming into prominence because he's being rediscovered. So because of the Crusades, there is a rediscovery of the works of Aristotle that had largely been lost to Western Europe. And in Aristotle, there is a problem for Christianity. There's a problem for Christianity. 
The problem is we have a, a figure that can't be ignored. Aristotle is, is part of that whole ancient world that Augustine gave us. He's the author of the nomological order that Augustine has baptized with Christianity's approval. So Aristotle can't be ignored, but Aristotle describes a world that does not have a lot of the Christian mythology attached to it and offers explanations for things that Christianity makes no effort to explain. So there is this tremendous attraction to the power, the new explanatory power provided by Aristotle. And the model he gives of getting clear definitions and clear syllogistic inferences and building up a very clear picture is enmeshed with this new way of reading and this new way of experiencing knowing and experiencing oneself primarily inside one's head, inside one's language. So Aristotle can't be ignored or rejected because of his eminent authority, but neither can he simply be assimilated into the Christian worldview because he talks about and explains things and does things in a manner that you don't find in the Bible. So more and more people are reading in this new way. They're starting to emulate the new right, Aristotelian science. But this is starting to cause a crisis within Christianity. And so there's an individual who arises who sees the looming threat that this poses. Who sees two things happening. There's a change in the psychotechnology of reading, and there is a change in how people are starting to look at the world. Both of these changes are associated with the difficulty of assimilating the rediscovered Aristotle into a Christian worldview. But Thomas Aquinas takes up the task of solving this problem. He's going to be a pivotal figure precisely for that reason. Now, again, Thomas Aquinas, voluminous writing, and there's a whole group of people, both theologians and philosophers, Thomistic, and there's all kinds of controversy around you know, how Aristotelian Aquinas is, how Platonic he is, right? I'm going to again try and pr present the way I think he was historically taken up and basically understood. So, for Aquinas, how do we, how do we salvage both the Christian worldview and the new science, the new science of the rediscovered Aristotle? Well, he, he does something really brilliant. He goes to the fundamental grammar of all of this. What's the fundamental grammar of this? It's the mythology of the two worlds. The axial revolution is there's two worlds. There's the real world and the illusory world, right? 
And that has been a constant throughout all of this. And he comes up with a way of trying to assimilate it. Right? So we have the two worlds. Right? Here's the, in Plato, in the Platonic and even in the Augustinian, here's the everyday world, right? And then here is the real world. But what Aquinas does is he changes that. He says, this world is real too. There is real knowledge of this world possible. This is knowledge that we can get through reason and science. So reason and science study this world, this world, and they can discover real truths about that through reason, through science. But this world up here is still somehow more real. How do we do that? Well, he invents a distinction that we tend to anachronistically push back on people before, and there, and there are definitely precursors in Pseudo-Dionysus and Augustine, but the idea is this is the natural world that can be studied by reason and by science. This is the world above the natural world. What's the word for above? Super. So this is the supernatural world. And this is not a world that can be studied by science or reason. This is a world that is only right accessible by faith. So there's now the two worlds have been made sort of fundamentally two separate kinds of worlds, and there isn't a continuum between them now. There isn't a way of moving through them by love and reason united together. What now happens is the following, and what's going to happen is the notion of faith is going to be changed too. Reason is down here, and love is up here. And the idea for, for Aquinas, I should say, is that love moves the will. See, in Plotinus, and even in Augustine, love moves reason. But for Aquinas, love moves the will. Love moves the will to assert things that it can't know through reason. So love now becomes, sorry, faith now becomes the act of willful assertion. Now, to be fair to Aquinas, this is not willful in the sense of my will. This is a will that is being driven by the love of God. But nevertheless, what's now happening is love and reason are being pulled apart. Faith is going from this participation in the flow of the course of history to the assertion of propositions, the assertion of statements, giving a creed, and more fundamentally, right, science and spirituality are now being divorced from each other in a profound way, such that if it's scientific, it's not spiritual, and if it's spiritual, it's not scientific. 
And if you're talking, and you can see the beginnings of romanticism. If it has to do with love, then it has nothing to do with reason. And if it has anything to do with reason, then it has nothing to do with love. And all of these things are now being pulled apart. Now he is, I mean, he, Aquinas is a, a wonderful man, a wonderful writer. He is trying to save right, the axial worldview by reformulating its fundamental grammar of two worlds into a formulation that is now becoming familiar to you. But here's the danger, and this is not a danger that Aquinas foresees. As this becomes more and more successful, and we less and less find our assertions our will being driven by love, but just by willpower alone, this world becomes less and less real to us. The supernatural world. And if there is no supernatural world, if it's no longer, and listen to my language, if it's no longer viable to us, we can think about it and imagine it, but if it's no longer livable to us, then the whole axial world mythology, the whole axial world grammar, that grammar that gave us the grammar of meaning and wisdom and self-transcendence, that huge heritage is now threatened to fall apart. We'll start looking at that next time together. Thank you for your time and attention. Process of loss. Dude, that was powerful at the end. Yeah, yeah. So we, Augustine's or the 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 uh, Augustus <laughs> Augustusness. That's how I have it written down. Augustine. Oh man, my writing is terrible. Um, his world was a world of loss and trauma, like yes. literally cities, literature, trade, um, you know, commerce. And, well, you know, we can kind of relate to that, too. You know, we have a lot of failing cities. Literacy rates are at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. um, you know, trade is becoming harder and longer. The sacred canopy has been torn apart and can no longer shelter us. And so this is... We didn't get back to the levels of cities, literature, trade, and, you know, all that until the 1700s in England. After the fall of Rome, yeah, yeah, it took till like 1750 for us to get back to that level. That's that. That's yeah. That's that's a hit. It's not as bad as the you know, like you said, not as bad as the Bronze Age collapse. But like the Bronze Age collapse is barely rememberable history for us. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of things. It's like we don't but know we why, know but we know we were starting to have even iron making technology back then, mm -hmm. towards the end of the Bronze Age. We had well-developed languages, philosophies, mathematics, mm -hmm. medicine, and all of that was completely forgotten. A large number of civilizations the world over suddenly just disappeared. These old languages completely forgotten. We have barely any history on the Bronze Age. 
and so this experience for people like the you know the the followers of this new proposition um they were experiencing a profound sense of domicide in a sense of it was a home this these these ideas and philosophy and this type of christianity was a home yeah to be in yeah and now it's falling apart mm-hmm. um yeah and and part of this was due to of course the schism yeah between ten, the east orthodox and the western yeah. catholics yeah and, so uh, 1054 yeah the division so that that sense of uh deep connection to neoplatonism was lost that neoplatonic philosophy that was so deeply imbued in christianity and that mystical aspect the mm-hmm. mysticism aspect Much of, of that was lost christianity yes yeah, so the east at for the west at least yeah. uh, east orthodox has really kept it alive but yet check out east orthodox if you're interested in because it's quite intriguing to see how christianity continued on in the east yeah. um so then around nine, uh, 1096 to 1141 there was victor and then chetham a number of minds that were recognizing this shift in how people were reading the psycho technology of reading is changing yeah that that's interesting that you know we, we went just from, the simple fact of not reading it aloud anymore and not reciting it yes you know because yes. like we use the word recital like mm-hmm. when you're singing something or doing a dance thing it's you, you're not just it's a particular mode doing it yeah. you're yeah it's a very interactive mode of being and that I love sh- the way he describes the that. sharing of it makes the difference too Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so people previously in this time that they, they read aloud in community and it was this art of re- re- recitation versus mm-hmm. just reading out mm-hmm. loud so people like the difference between reciting a poem and mm-hmm. reading a poem is for vague states um i love how he talks about how songs they don't just appeal propositionally like in the lyrics of the song the words that are being said aren't just propositions for you to believe in though that might be part of the artist's intention the songs hit us on so many levels, and then the sharing of them as well. You, you have to bring about all of your know-how, so your perspectival mm-hmm. aspect of knowing. And because you are you are a participant in this event, and you, you have a perspective of the experience of it as it's happening, and in that it's participatory with an audience. Um, and knowing by being changed too, this poems this, can change us. Songs while can you're change us. reciting it, you are being changed being by changed the yourself, reciting. So that's why of it's it. participatory. Yeah. It's a co-creation at that point. So that's a totally different style of reading. I can see that because your reality can be alt- altered by a well-read poem or sure. a great line in a movie. Um, things like that can de- in songs, of course, change us, alter our reality. We'll so take, there's this that old style of lectro divina. Divina. Uh, Lectio Divina. Lectio, thank you. Lectio. Oh, yeah. Lectro. I'm looking at my eye. <laughs> Lectro. Lectio Divina. Yeah, let this let the text reading. speak to you. You're opening up to the text. Divine text. And you're, you're preparing a receptivity. And he mentioned that's what, when people feel like, you know, the God is there. When, when, when you read scripture together and you read it together mm-hmm. and that, that, feeling God of God present. in the text and it moves yeah. through you speaking through the text to heal transform yeah. to actualize educate and help us remember the being mode that's the way reading yeah. was looked at it's helped you remember the being mode the state of oneness with reality and with God yeah so that's not just to have propositions so that was the way I guess you know the eastern Christianity and what all well I guess you know Christianity up to that point that's where they're at. And then there's this Aristotelian shift. 
Yes, into and the the exclusive priority of, of logic and reason, definitions and propositions, yes. and that's the yes. That's to me. That's kind of like you know, like for certain aspects, that's cool. But it's just irritating when it's just arguing. Oh, what the meaning of that word and the meaning of that word? It's okay. Well, I mean it to mean this, and the meaning's not really that's that all, important. And that you know? became how we think too, yeah. propositionally through our language in our mm-hmm. minds, and so it became more silent reading. Uh, you're right. Definitions and propositions. So coherence becomes even more important than experiencing the being mode. This yeah. is very useful for us as we became psych. You know, as we became more scientifically adept beings, uh, this helped us develop technology. This yeah. helped us understand things that we couldn't have understand before about the everyday world. But it's certainly in this new model for thought. Well, it doesn't really have it room. It definitely caused a, a split in our own minds almost, too. It, it, our, it, our sense of connection with the sacred is really begins to be obliterated at this point yeah and it slowly but surely the silent reading doesn't well i guess silent reading with the exclusive priority to definitions and propositions for learning it's fine well we forgot how to do but but it's it lacks the personal transcendence aspect so you're reading it for oh what's its proposition and what's the language and everything in there and you're not really Useful for how to build a cabinet, how to build a human being, not as useful. But to experience a poem, like Mm -hmm. a a poem is best when it's allowed to be a a poem, not when you're breaking it down into, well, okay, these standards and this, that, and then Mm -hmm. it's just like, you know. So we had a shift in priorities. What we're prioritizing now is mostly logic and reason, and it's less about stuff about the being mode. So we less and less practice this style of reading, which you can think of yourself having maybe engaged in before. Um, and it works very well with a good part of a fiction story that really inspires you or something along mm-hmm. those lines, maybe an autobiography. And we went f- from the conforming model of the world, as in you're conforming to the world in in, in the best way, in the most harmonious way to the world. and The gnosis n- process of anagage and self-transformation yeah. of being and yeah. becoming, that was the old way of reading. Yeah, yeah. and... Now it well I guess now at this at this point not physically now but now in this time History. frame yeah the new thought um, the new thought is just having a coherent language with proper you know proper language everything means what it's mm-hmm. supposed to be clear propositions know. yeah and so it's a, then we had this shift to this intensive sense of self yeah and overanalyzation of the language opposed to getting on in the world and transcending yourself which is the ultimate goal and i'm you know i'm not dogging it and you know i'm not like you know dogging this mode of thought but i can see where the but the, how we the become, pitfalls yeah the pitfalls yeah. are yeah because how we become how we begin to know ourselves at this point is more so by our propositions we're looking for more conformity outside and in the way that we can formulate our language and ideas about ourselves rather than engaging in a becoming process sure. a self-transformation transformative practice and the big why for like why why did this shift you know happen is well the world's opening again it's repairing um Mm -hmm. and people are curious you know they want to know more about the world and in this you know more scientific way like you Mm -hmm. can you can imagine in more recent history when we started making electricity being a thing and you know they lit up the world's fair and it was like oh, and everybody was right. like science we're in the future now and yeah, yeah. So it's we, we natural to be curious about like okay what is this yes, world what are these techniques yes. that we can use to understand and it's a beautiful thing that happens this, in fact but there know. was a downside 
yeah. we would just begin to put a lot more value into the well-organized propositional yeah. theories than in that sense of the sacred anymore. Less and less because yeah. of the power it was given us over the natural environment. So when I can read this way, my argumentative skills go up. Yeah. My ability to prove something or affect the natural world is increasing. Um, but I'm losing reading as a transformative tool. And so we're having this wide scale movement from engaging into more logical coherency. Aristotle's being rediscovered. Yeah. And the Crusades are occurring. Um, Which brought us a lot of, or, well, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the the West. So, which brought the West um, more of Aristotle that was lost yes. to history. So now it's 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 the old thing that's brand new now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. His explanatory power mm -hmm. and his way that he could develop clear pictures and understanding comprehensive logical arguments was really attractive now at this point in history, and and more and more we're and more and more in our heads thinking according to language and proposition. Mm -hmm. There's more and more scientific thinking, and there's this crisis in Christianity now. We see the change in the psychotechnology. Well, because we can't we can't ignore Aristotle, because Aristotle's ideas are like this cornerstone of what um, August Augustus, yeah, Augustine Augu and Aquinas. Augustine, yeah. thank you. So so many Uggs and Ogs. Um, it was you know that's one of the cornerstones oh, is what Aristotle was talking about, but it cannot be reconciled with Christianity mm -hmm. either because mm -hmm. the stuff they're getting is pre-christian yes that yes. was lost so there is no or there's missing reference yes. points with both of them there's things that aristotle explains that christianity has no explanation for that doesn't mm -hmm. even bother because mm -hmm. it's you know it's like, so like now it's causing more of christianity to be come into question in, yeah. the, in the west Well, like christianity doesn't explain why the ball floats right right it, it, well it doesn't really it need doesn't, to it doesn't have a spot for that spot you know, yeah, it's not about breaking down the constituent matter of reality. It's about yeah. how to live, yeah, a way of living. So this this change in how things are no longer as associated and no longer as stitched together causes this crisis. We see this change in not just how people are reading, but how they actually look at the world and think within their own minds about themselves. Uh, so along comes Aquinas. This mystic who wants to try and find a way to stitch things back together. He wants to salvage the Christian worldview. And and also this new science of Aristotle. This new science yeah. at the same time. So he's trying to assimilate the two. Uh, the real world and the everyday world that we learned about through Plato. Yeah, the supernatural world and the natural world. Mm -hmm. The world of love and the world of reason. And I, I, I like this line that he had in there. Um, love moves the will to assess to assist things yes it can't understand through reason yes that was really well said um yeah I, that was his point because in in moving from this idea we, we create an even greater fracture in our sense of reality and we separate it from this one world reality that we previously held into this idea of there's a natural world that can be studied with reason and science and then there's this supernatural world. Now, Aquinas is trying to say that both are real, but reason and science can be applied to the everyday world to discover real truths. And then this other, higher, supernatural real world is still more real. 
um, but there's no more continuum mm -hmm. there. So, so that idea that's proposed, love is what moves the will, is a beautiful answer to that. But it's it still seemed like you know it, it continued to they continued these two worlds continued to but fall further away right. from each other. So they're, they're still pulling apart. And so now, you know, faith becomes an assertion, divorced from science. And that's the problem. And now yes. the the world, the supernatural world, the world of love, the real world that is still more real than the everyday world that is also real becomes less real. Yeah. So and we're, now we're trying to use reason to believe in the supernatural world, which makes no sense. So yeah, no right. longer the yeah. no wonder the psychological yeah. break. Faith is becoming an assertion of belief rather than faithfulness, yeah. faithful involvement in the flow and the co-creative process of making the world better along with God, yeah. that was lost. And that was the danger Aquinas did not see. He had this beautiful answer, but it was, and it was super compelling, and it gave people an excuse to engage even more in logic and reason at the downfall of you know, at the cost of less process of self-knowing and being and becoming transformative practices of prayer and meditation, contemplation, and so forth. And the less yeah. we did that. And you could almost like break. We, we even be begin to see faith as an assertion of a belief, as yeah. a reason, yeah. as a, a tool of reason. Opposed to the thing that you For do. the supernatural. And you, yeah. you know. You can't reason the supernatural in that way. You can only be and become. Well, it seems that they're at this point in time, you could call it a a modal world confusion or a word world modal confusion. In the sense of yes. you, you could think of the the world of love as one mode of being, and the and the natural world as another like mode of being. And there's a you know a confusion of which one. I hate to use this word, but has dominance in the relationship. It used to be. The supernatural world is the th the where sacred. everything comes that moves everything. Yes. And now the sacred, the love yeah. of creation of God, of higher ideals, that is the ultimate reality. And that's what moved the that natural flipped, world. The natural world. And, but now at this point in time, and I would argue at this point in time, that we are holding the real world above the supernatural world. So the the world of reason over the world of love yes and the reason i think reason should be subservient to love is because you can come up with a really well argued reason for doing a lot of really vicious horrible evil well, you things. mean like depopulating people because sure. we fart too much and right. we're, we're killing the ozone and all that jazz yeah, yeah. right right even though the population's looking to level out around 13 billion yeah people are having less and less children and need to less in more developed countries. Well, the the good thing about that is the more developed the country gets and the better people live naturally, less the less kids are actually they have. in danger of depopulation so, and not enough yeah. people to take care of the actual, keep mm -hmm. the infrastructure running yeah. anymore. Yeah, Japan's in, right, in on the, the future, right, right on the edge of that right now. Certainly and it's, not it's enough scary. people to take care of themselves once they get older. Yeah. Because they're not having kids to do so. Anymore. Well, that's what the robots are the for, robots, man. Yeah. And they're friendly, and they're like, yeah. hey, so they love, freak me love out. Love is important. We forgot to keep love on top. Yeah. Because this idea, like, will as driven by love of God becomes less and less. Less and less will is now driven by love. The supernatural world becomes less real to people. Scientific, scientific revolution occurs, yes, but love being less and less viable in the supernatural world, less a livable reality. 
and the interaction with the li- with the supernatural, less a livable reality. Uh, the think- heritage of self transcendence becomes forgotten, and that shelter of that lo- of reason guided by love. You mm-hmm. need wisdom to guide mm-hmm. our reason. We need to not just be using our logic for pure evil and self gain and self interest because it's a perfectly viable survival. Uh, technique to lie still and cheat so if there's no good if there's no god if there's no ultimate reason if there's no agape or love or something that transcends us that is a higher ideal for us to strive for i have an idea about why we don't see fairies and gnomes and angels and demons anymore and all those things that we have so many stories about that you know some of these stories predate christianity and a lot of other things are just told over and over again perhaps as we've developed as reasoning beings we've lost that world that supernatural world being able to see the the forces of nature and the universe as one and you know yeah understand it yeah. that way and then because like dude the gremlins are there and there's ways that you can get them to stop messing with your stuff leave a little mm-hmm. alcohol and a remote for them well the um, native tribes here believe that you could communicate with your ancestors especially in dreams if you had a question yeah. you would bring it to them when you're going to bed and they would tell so, you in their dream they'd instruct you on how to do the thing that you're trying to learn to do yeah so like ultimately like you know even say if you're um you know true or not it's, like say if you're like a pagan too like you know this trying to figure out like particularly through you know the methods of christianity would help you to be able to see the supernatural real world of love and everything even more even being an earth worshiping pagan as well sure yeah and you know in christianity there's a lot of uh, paganistic uh, symbology and things in the art already there because incorporated to, to marry the two during the time. And I think it's yeah. also because they're naturally very similar in their psychotechnology way of looking at the world and existing with the world and mm-hmm. you're just enough to piece together and add more, mm-hmm. you know, cause you can't, you can't just force people to believe stuff. You have to, m- you know, make it similar enough or find the similarities yes. and bridge them. Yes. together and That's, there has to be similarities in order to make the shift mm-hmm. you know you, you 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 can get people to say they believe but to actually get people to believe is a more um um well you got to work with them and you got to show them and you got to figure out what they you know what they think how they think how they believe and then augment modify move in and you know there's a little bit of you know like people take over people throughout the world but also naturally you know cultures ideas religions and everything they they move they spread they Mm -hmm. have a a will of their own if you will right and you can see this through like you know different styles of you know music and musical instruments and poetry and all types of things you can see this core line moving through these movements just take on a life of their own own and they just they go they do their thing Mm -hmm. um but it's interesting. We're at an interesting point right now. We're uh, like in in this history. We're obviously at an right interesting now, point in right history, now. We're in a, yeah, yeah. Well, in this um, part of the story too of, of our human story. It is this is a very intriguing part. And that isn't that crazy? Like how recently that shift was in our thinking. Mm-hmm. It was all building to this, and then this schism occurred, and the disconnection and the power of reason for its a, a, a 
allowing our capacity, increased capacity to affect our en environments, to affect the world, and to build and amass and advance technology. This is a powerful driving force. It gave us so much power as peoples, as civilizations, and then as empires. And it changed the course of human history. But we certainly did become disconnected from the sacred. And vestiges have, have survived, but it is no longer our existential being mode that most humans inhabit. But it's not it's so far totally, it's not so far away as It's though, not so far know. away either. No, it's immediately accessible and available. Uh, well, interesting we have enough. all of these ancients at hand now. We're trying we in, <laughs> yeah. in the midst of this revolution yeah. now today of interest in the mindfulness, wisdom practices of the past. Yeah. Oh, what a time to be alive. We have we have the ability to completely destroy ourselves and the ability to ascend to a higher state on the same plate. Yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> when it would occur, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Well that's yeah. The, it's axi it's the axial of a movement, yeah. the turning, the moving around something. Right. Like, yeah. We've gotten to the point to where the turning, the turning. Our technology is so great that if we that we, that we can indeed level up, or we can destroy ourselves, or severely set ourselves and the planet back. Yeah. As at least so far as the next intelligent species be able to make it after after us if we actually eradicated ourselves the planet will probably be well, okay enough I, i'm hoping that hum humanity is going to last so long that we're going to be the fuel so that some other advanced civilization is pumping out of the ground to fuel their civilization i want to last that long that would be a, I want to be that. a nice big thick layer in the crust but that's that we've I'm given looking, a lot back i'm looking for millions of years here regenerate you know? a lot of the bio biomass on the planet uh, and, oh yeah well we can like that like personally as well as collectively we have the ability to either destroy ourselves or make everything better and transcend ourselves we're at that that we do we're at that point right now we really but are are we're we, we going to be the colonists. kid that's stealing just because they know it's wrong yeah this is the point or, where this is of maximum importance yeah. like we have to earn our way into being a long-term yeah. symbiotic species with with each other in this planet and get to venture out and explore yeah. space well we can't keep licking at our festering wounds expecting them to heal you know like yeah you know, we can't can't just keep doing that. Yeah, man. Verveke is hitting home a lot lately. And thank you so much to John Verveke for this series and for his new wisdom series that's ongoing right now. You guys should check that out as well. If you're looking for some actionable things that you can do right now, actual practices. He goes through all different kinds of contemplative practices. He teaches Tai Chi, does a lot of stuff in this series, and it's it's really exciting to see it coming coming out now. Yeah. Well, so it's like basically what happens after awakening from the meaning crisis. Yeah, well, you know, now that you're after awake, so what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> after Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. All right, well, on that note, I'm turning into a pumpkin. No doubt. Mm. Well, love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Actual Eye Podcast. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. And we'll talk to you soon. Love you guys.